Amen. Well, please take your copy of Scripture and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This morning we will look at verses 28 to 30. And I'll begin reading for us in verse 18. So I'll begin reading for us in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Read through to verse 30 and we'll focus our attention on verses 28 through 30. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that your word is eternal. We thank you that your word is true. Father, we pray that the great promises that you have given us in the gospel would become not only understandable to us as we look to Your Word, but Lord, that they would become very real to our hearts. That we would find comfort and assurance and joy and courage as we trust in the promises of the Gospel. So Lord, help us now in this time by Your Spirit. We pray that You would be glorified as we rejoice and your goodness and kindness to us in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. When Romans chapter 8, we learn that there are certain things that Christians know, and there are certain things that we do not know. So there are any number of things in this life as Christians that we know, and there are also any number of things in this life that we acknowledge we do not know. 
So for example, in Romans chapter 8, verse 22, which I just read here a few moments ago, Paul tells us that we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so one of the things we know as Christians is that this world suffers under the curse of sin. These sufferings are evidenced in various ways, earthquakes, tornadoes, tsunamis, sickness, disease, death, and we both witness and experience these sufferings. So this is something we know. But last week we saw in Romans chapter 8 verse 26 that in this fallen world there are also things that we do not know. So, for example, in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, Paul says, we do not always know what to pray as we ought. There are many things in this life that we acknowledge that are a mystery to us. They remain a mystery to us. And that can be unsettling as we live in a world of sin and suffering. But Paul reassures us in that same verse, in verse 26, that when we can't see the future, when we can't discern the right path forward, when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us. In our text this morning, Paul offers us another assurance. Paul tells us that there is something else as Christians that we know. You see it there in verse 28. Paul assures us that we do know that all things work together for good for those who are called according to God's purpose. You see, we do not know, in fact, we cannot know how God will work out all the details and all the particularities of our lives. But we can know. And as Paul says here, we do know God's overarching purpose and plan for our lives. And that overarching purpose and plan is for our good and for His glory. It's as we trust this promise that we will find strength, that we'll find courage, that we will find joy, even as we experience the various groanings and sufferings that are very real in this fallen world. So I want us to examine this great promise this morning in six parts, okay? So we're going to examine this great promise that we find here in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 in six parts. And the first is this, okay? First thing we want to consider is the promise stated, the promise stated. So what is the promise? Look there in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, So there's the promise. All things work together for good. Now, by way of preview, uh, so just to prepare you for the rest of our series in Romans chapter 8, the rest of Romans chapter 8 is full of glorious gospel promises. As I've mentioned before, some people say that this is the greatest chapter and the greatest letter and the greatest book that's ever been written. And Martin Luther, as he considers this verse here, he says that, quote, this is the foundation on which rests everything that the apostle says to the end of the chapter, end of quote. This is a significant promise, a promise that Christians throughout the centuries have found great hope and encouragement in. 
Some people have likened it to a pillow that you can rest your head on at night. All things work together for good. Now notice here, we need to make some distinctions here. Notice that Paul does not say all things are good. That'd be very different, wouldn't it? Paul is not saying that sorrow is joy, or that suffering is pleasure, or that tragedy is relief, or that grief is gladness, or that death is life. So what Paul is doing here is that this is not just positive thinking. Whenever you experience something bad, just think about it in a positive way. Paul's statement here is not a denial of the very real difficulties and sorrows that come to us in this life. Remember in verse 17 of this same chapter, Paul acknowledges that we will suffer in this world. In fact, we must suffer in this world with Jesus. And then in verses 22 to 25, Paul says that creation groans because as a result of sin, the physical world suffers under futility and the bondage of corruption. So it is not that all things are good. Cancer and pneumonia and miscarriages and tsunamis and broken marriages and pandemics and wars are not good. They are bad. Oftentimes, really bad. But the promise is that God will work all things, even the bad things, and we could say especially the bad things, for our good. So this is the promise. This is the promise stated. Secondly, consider this. The recipients of the promise. The recipients of the promise. Look there in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now simply put, what Paul is saying here is that this promise is for Christians. Notice the promise here is bracketed by two descriptors of those for whom the promise applies. So you notice there in verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, there's the first descriptor, for those who love God. As we'll see, this is a love that God Himself puts places in the hearts of his children for him. And then notice the second descriptor. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Here's the second descriptor. For those who are called according to his purpose. And so what is God's purpose? What is the purpose that that Paul is speaking about here in the text? Well, His purpose, and we'll see this as we move further through the passage, the purpose of God in this context here is God's purpose of salvation and redemption through Jesus Christ. So this promise is for those who love God and for those who have been called according to His purpose, His purpose of eternal salvation and redemption in Jesus Christ. Paul speaks of this purpose of salvation in other places like Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Or in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 
You know, because our society has been so influenced by Christian thinking and by a Christian worldview, versions of this promise are often repeated and misapplied. So sometimes someone who is not a Christian will comfort themselves or comfort others with statements like this. They may say something like, well, everything has a purpose. Or everything works out in the end. Or eventually all the pieces of the puzzle will fit together. You see, the assumption is that this promise applies to everyone irrespective of one's belief in God or their relationship to Jesus Christ. But notice that is not what Paul is saying in this text. Paul explicitly states, not once, but twice, that this promise is for believers. It is one for those who love God, and it is two for those who have been called according to His purpose. It's especially surprising to hear folks who doubt the existence of God or even deny the existence of God claiming some version of this promise. This is a tremendous promise. And it's a tremendous promise that can only be true if there is a sovereign and good God who rules and reigns over the universe. That's one of the reasons why the promise is so tremendous. Bertrand Russell, who was a famous philosopher and atheist, honestly acknowledged the implications of a universe without God. Bertrand Russell wrote these words, quote, that man is the product of causes which have no prevision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of an accidental collocations of atoms. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. End of quote. Doesn't that fill you with hope? It's a horrible prospect, isn't it? That there is no purpose, there is no meaning, there is no ultimate significance to life. We can agree with Bertrand Russell. If there is not a good and sovereign God, that is in fact true. This promise is only a reality if there is a good and sovereign God. And as Paul states here, it's only those who know Him. It's only those who love Him. It's only those who, by His grace, have been caught up in His eternal purpose and plan of salvation and redemption that can experience This promise. So we've seen the promise stated. All things work together for good. We've seen the recipients of the promise. That is those who are Christians. Third, consider the definition of the promise. 
the definition of the promise. Look there in verse uh, 29. Paul goes on to say, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now we've already acknowledged that Paul does not say that all things are good. Rather, Paul says that God will work all things together for good, right? But then the question is, what is good? What does good mean or what does good refer to in this context? Does good mean health and wealth? Does good mean prosperity? Does good mean fame and fortune and popularity? No. Notice the connection here that Paul makes. Notice the connection between verse 28 and verse 29. In verse 28, Paul says, All things work together for good. And then in verse 29, he says, For or because, so he's going to explain to us now what that means, that all things work together for good. For or because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So in verse 29, he's defining the good in verse 28. And what is the good in verse uh, 28? It is, according to verse 29, to be conformed to the image of God's Son. To be conformed to the image of Jesus. Now this is further confirmed if you go down to verse 30. Because in verse 30, notice there, what is our final destination in God's great purpose of redemption? Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And what does it mean to be glorified? But to be conformed to the image of God's Son, who was raised from the dead who is given a new glorious body, who dwells in the glory of His Father forever, to be conformed to His image, to be made like Him in His glory, is what it means for us to be glorified. So this is God's ultimate purpose for good in our lives. That we would be like His Son, the Lord Jesus. And God is governing and directing and purposing all things towards that end. This is a work that begins in this life as we grow in spiritual maturity and we become more like Jesus. And it is a work that is consummated in the life to come when we are finally like Him. It is also, consider this, it is also a spiritual promise. This means... No more, when we are finally like Him, it means no more struggles to believe and trust the promises of God. It means no more disappointing relapses into sin. As Kent Hughes says, quote, We will all be like Jesus. We will retain our individuality, but we will also have Christ's character. The same gentleness, the same self-control, the same perfect love, end of quote. Not only is it a spiritual promise, though, what we've seen in Romans 8 over and over again is it's also a physical promise. To be like Him will also mean, not only will it 
change us and transform us finally and forever spiritually so that we are like Jesus. It will change us finally and forever physically so that we are like Jesus in his resurrected body and glorious new nature. To be like him means no more doctor's visits. It means no more pills to take. It means no more surgeries to endure. It means no more death. In a similar fashion, we will retain our individuality. So, in terms of our physical appearance, we will still have unique physical features. Maybe we can think of our height or the color of our hair or the bone structure in our faces. And at the same time, we will possess new glorified bodies like the Lord Jesus that will not age or ache or decay. We will be like Him. And this is God's ultimate purpose for good in our lives. So the promise stated, the recipients of the promise, the definition of the promise, which is that we will be like Him. And then fourth, consider this, the goal of the promise. The goal of the promise. Look there in verse 29 again. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. So if the definition of the promise is conformity, to the image of Jesus, the goal of the promise is the exaltation of Jesus. Do you see that? So we will be conformed to the image of His Son. Here's the reason why. In order that, this is the purpose, this is the goal, He, that is Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. That word firstborn there is a title that represents priority. It represents primacy, preeminence. The Lord says of David in Psalm 89, verse 27, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, we know in the Old Testament that the firstborn, typically, he held the place of honor in the family. He was the heir of the father's inheritance. But David, in the story of David... David was not the firstborn in his family. In fact, David had a whole slew of brothers who were older than him. So biologically speaking, David was not the firstborn in his family. In fact, David was the lastborn. So what does God mean when he says of David that he will make him the firstborn? Well, the psalmist tells us, the Lord tells us through the psalmist, I will make him the firstborn, here it is, the highest of the kings of the earth. In other words, the Lord is saying he's not speaking about birth order, rather he's speaking of status and position. He will make David among the kings of the earth the highest, the preeminent one, the one who has priority. Now consider this. As we think about our own future redemption and what, who we will be in the future and our relationship to God in Christ. So Paul has already told us in Romans chapter 4 that through faith in Jesus, we are heirs of the world. There will be a new heavens and a new earth and we will inherit the world. 
And in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, Paul says that we are fellow heirs, co-heirs with Christ. So in this new heavens and in this new earth, we will rule and we will reign with the Lord Jesus. But Paul says here in our text in verse 29 that rightfully so, Jesus will retain his priority, his primacy, his preeminence among us. He will reign supreme in the mind of God the Father, in the eyes of creation, and in the hearts of his people. So he will be the firstborn among many brothers. Who are his brothers? Those who have trusted in him who are conformed to His image, who share His glory, and yet among us He will retain preeminence. And the preeminence of Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth will cause us no consternation. There won't be a hint of envy or jealousy, but His glory and preeminence will be our joy. We will rejoice in the sovereign glory and preeminence of the Son of God forever. Now, fifth, consider this, the origin of the promise. The origin of the promise. Look there in verse 29, and we read these words. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, verse 29 begins what has come to be known as the golden chain of salvation. So if you think of a chain and it has its various links. And here, as we walk through our text, we will see the different links in the golden chain of salvation. Now, this chain extends from eternity past to eternity future. And the chain begins in eternity past with God's foreknowledge and predestination. So you see there in verse 29, we read, for those whom he foreknew. Now we're going to spend a little bit of time on this word because your understanding of this word will dramatically affect the way you understand the rest of this passage. The word here foreknew and, uh, or foreknow in the original language is pro-gnosko. Pro means before and gnosko means to know. So to know beforehand is the idea. And the controversy here is whether this word in the context here in Romans chapter 8 means to know something mentally beforehand like an idea or an event, or does it mean to know someone personally, lovingly, relationally, to commit yourself to them. Now some argue, and perhaps you've heard this before, that the way that foreknowledge works in terms of God's redemption and salvation of His people is that God looks through kind of the corridor of time and He knows beforehand those who will choose Christ and as a result of them choosing Christ, He then chooses them. So He knew beforehand the decision that Christians would make to choose Christ and then as a result, He chooses them. So in some ways we could say, In this view, God's foreknowledge is based on our forechoosing. Others contend that Paul is saying more than just God knows beforehand decisions that we will make in the future, but rather what Paul is saying here is that he foreknew us. He foreknew his people. 
He knew us and loved us and committed Himself to us before we ever knew Him. And I think this is right. Now, this understanding of the word know has its roots in the Old Testament Scriptures. And there's many examples I could give of this, but just for the sake of time this morning, I'm going to point you to one passage, and that's Amos chapter 3, verse 2. In Amos chapter 3, verse 2, the Lord is speaking through the prophet Amos to the people of Israel, and the Lord says to the people of Israel, you only have I known, the word there in Hebrew is yada, it means to know, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, of course, when when the Lord says to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, the Lord is not saying, I don't even know that any other nation in the world exists like Babylon or Assyria or Philistia or Edom. Or, I, don't, I don't even know that they exist. I only know that you exist. That's not what the Lord is saying. Rather, the Lord is saying, I know all the nations of the earth, but you only have I set my affection on. You only have I loved in this particular way in which I have entered into a covenant relationship with you. And we talk this way, don't we? Someone might ask us, do you know Bill? We might say, well, I've met Bill, but I don't really know him. Now, what distinction are we making there? Do we know Bill? Well, yes, we know he exists. We actually know his name. We've had an interaction with him. But we don't know him personally. We wouldn't necessarily call him a friend. And that's what I think that's the way Paul is using the word here. That the Lord knew us personally. He knew us relationally. He knew us covenantally. He committed Himself to us. Now, how do you distinguish? So so, so we have these two different definitions or uses of the word foreknow in the Bible. It can be used either way. How do we know whether it's being used this way here in Romans chapter 8? We have to look at the context. There's a number of things we could say here, but I just want to point out one thing that I think will make it clear in terms of how Paul is using this word here in Romans 8. Notice foreknow here in Romans chapter 8. Notice that when Paul uses this word in Romans chapter 8 verse 29, that the object of foreknow is not impersonal, but it's personal. So the idea here, and you'll see this in the text, is that God did not know, foreknow a decision or an event, but he foreknew a people. Look there and see how the text reads. We read, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And this idea is actually carried out through the rest of the golden chain of salvation. If you go down to verse 30... Notice what we read there. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Do you see, on each occasion of these verbs in the golden chain of salvation, the object is not an idea or an event or a decision, but rather a people. Now, in contrast, if the golden chain of salvation begins with God foreknowing a decision and not a people, it butchers the meaning and the coherence of the rest of the chain. 
So the passage might read something like this. For the decision God foreknew, He also predestined, so He predestines the decision, to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And the decision He predestined, He also called. And the decision He called, He also justified. And the decision He justified, He also glorified. That doesn't make sense, does it? It breaks the entire meaning and coherence of what Paul is saying. God did not foreknow, predestine, call, justify, glorify a decision, but rather a people. And so what it means for God to foreknow us is that God committed Himself to us in love before we ever knew Him. The other link here that you see in the chain from eternity past is the link of predestination. And there is, they're closely related, but there is a distinction to be made between foreknowledge and predestination. So foreknowledge speaks of God's love, His affection, His intention to enter into a personal and saving relationship with us. It's, it's a very personal term in that sense. He knows us. Predestination refers to God's preordained plan and purpose to then accomplish all that is necessary to make that salvation a reality. Now, sometimes we know that Christians will debate the meaning of foreknowledge and predestination. And let me just say that if that's done with the right heart and in the right spirit, there can be a place for that. It's one of the ways we learn is by talking about different ideas and talking about things from our different perspectives. But I want you to see here in Romans chapter 8 that Paul's intent here is not to ignite debate among Christians, but rather to awaken assurance in Christians. Notice how Paul makes this statement in the larger context of of discussing the sufferings and the disappointments that we experience in this life. And essentially Paul is posing this question, amid the various disappointments and sufferings that we know in this life, how can we be sure that God works all things together for our good? And here's Paul's answer. You can know, Christian, that God is working all things together for your good because before you were ever born, before your parents ever gave you a name, before you had ever done anything good or bad, God chose to know you, to set His love upon you, and to predestine all that was necessary for your eternal salvation and redemption. Paul's intent here is not for us to understand or resolve all the mysteries of foreknowledge and predestination. And if you try to, you will drive yourself crazy. Paul's intent here is to assure us that God Himself is the origin of all the good blessings of salvation that we know in Christ. And therefore, because God is the origin of those blessings, we can be confident that that good and those blessings are sure and certain and secure. 
Sixth, and finally, consider the fulfillment of the promise. So we've considered the promise stated, the recipients of the promise, the definition of the promise, the goal of the promise, the origin of the promise that originates with God and foreknowledge and predestination from eternity past. Now, let's consider six, the fulfillment of the promise in verse 30. Paul writes, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So in the golden chain of salvation, foreknowledge and predestination represent God's eternal love and purpose from eternity past. But what we see in chapter 8 verse 30 is the historical outworking of God's eternal plan which includes God calling, justifying, and glorifying His people. So let's look at each one of these links in the chain of salvation. So you, so you see all the links now, right? There's foreknowledge is one link, which links then to predestination, and then calling, and then justification, and then glorification. So notice calling there in verse 30. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Now, the Bible teaches us that gospel proclamation includes both an external, or we could refer to it as a general call, and it also includes an inward, and some people refer to it as an effectual call. So the general call of the gospel goes out to all people to repent and believe and to trust in the Lord Jesus. And then within the general call of the gospel, there is an effectual call. In other words, through the general call of the gospel, which goes out to all people, the Lord, through that general call, then works effectually to call some to himself. And this call is referred to as an effectual call because it, it accomplishes its purpose. It is effectual. It accomplishes the purpose for which it was set out. So I could point to any number of passages in the scriptures that make this distinction between a general call and an effectual call, but let me just give you one for the sake of time. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 to 24. Listen to what Paul says here. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So there's the general call. We preach Christ crucified to all people, Jews and Gentiles. Very next verse he says... But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see what Paul is saying? We preach Christ crucified to all people, general call. But as the general call goes forth, there are some who are called. And to them, Christ is the power and wisdom of God. In other words, they come to see Christ for who He truly is. They know Him for tru- who He truly is. They believe and trust in Him as the power and the wisdom of God. And Jesus said it this way, Many are called, but few are chosen. General call and an effectual call. It's interesting when Jesus calls Peter and Andrew or James and John to himself to be a disciple. He does not ask them, will you please follow me? Have you ever considered that? 
He sees them working in their boats. He sees them as fishermen doing their thing. And he comes along. He doesn't say, would you please follow me? What does Jesus say? He says, follow me. In other words, it's more than just an invitation. It's a summons. It's a command. And how do we know that it's the effectual call of God? Because they drop everything and they follow Him. In other words, the call accomplish its intended effect. You might ask yourself, how will I know that God is calling me? Well, my friends, if you treasure Him above everything else and you follow Him, He is calling you. Notice the next link in the golden chain of salvation. It's justification. So we've seen foreknowledge, predestination, calling, and now next is justification. He says there in verse 30, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. To be justified means to be declared right, to be declared just before God. And this is one of the great themes in Paul's letter to the Romans. The concern in justification is how can we as sinners who are unholy be made right and just before God who is holy and righteous? Now listen to Paul's answer to this. You may want to turn there and you can just flip over a few pages. Paul gives the answer in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 25. Listen to what Paul says here. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we are sinners. We are unrighteous in the presence of a righteous and holy God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. That is, we're declared right. We're declared just. How? By His grace as a gift. So this is not by our good works. It's not by our achievement. It's not by the good things that we have done. How can that be? How can we as sinners be declared right before a holy and just God and it not be based on what we have done? He goes on to say, Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forth as a propitiation or atoning sacrifice by His blood to be received by faith. So here's how it happens. Jesus' death on the cross was an atoning sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God against our sin. So that if we trust in the Lord Jesus and receive that sacrifice then our sins are forgiven and before a holy and righteous judge, not based on anything we've done, but solely based on the work of Jesus Christ, we are declared holy and righteous and just in His sight. This is the gift, the blessing of justification. Notice this as well in our text. That what Paul says here is that not some who are called are justified, but all who are called are justified. Now, do you see the implications of that? Do you know what that means? That means, again, that God's call is effectual. Everyone whom He calls in this way, in the Romans 8.29 way, is justified. And what that also means, then, 
is that faith is a gift. We must, we see it in Romans, if we are to be justified by, before God, it's not by our good works, but it's by faith, right? We must have faith. We must trust in the Lord Jesus in order to be justified. All those who are called are justified. So where does the faith come from? It is the call of God that awakens faith in us, that produces faith in us, that then allows us to trust in Jesus and to be justified. This is God's work. This is His purpose of redemption in our lives, to call us and in that calling to provide us with the faith we need to trust in the Lord Jesus. It's an amazing reality that all that the call of the gospel requires of us, the call of God provides for us. Notice the next link, the final link in the chain of salvation, and it is glorification. There in verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. As the author of Genesis records, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. In other words, the idea here is that we were originally created in the image of God to reflect the glory of God. And yet, because we have sinned, that image in us has been marred. It's been distorted. It's been broken. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But this is the promise of the gospel. That when Christ returns to complete our redemption, that image, the image of God in us, will be restored. That glory in us will be restored. One theologian states it this way, quote, Bodily resurrection with Christ will mean having the glory image fully restored in us so that we are conformed in every way to the image of God's Son in life and character. End of quote. Now, as we look at this chain of salvation, foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, glorification, notice again the certainty of our salvation. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is that God has a perfect batting average, God bats a thousand. He doesn't lose any of those whom He has purposed to save. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29. My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. There's effectual calling. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Is that not, my friends, what Paul is saying in our text? Notice, it's not that some that the Father foreknew He predestined, and some whom He predestined He called, and some whom He called He justified, and some whom He justified He glorified, as though along the links of the chain of salvation, God is losing some people all along the way. 
trying to get as many as he can across the finish line. No, everyone whom God foreknew, he predestines. And everyone he predestines, he calls. And everyone he calls, he justifies. And everyone he justifies, he glorifies. In other words, the links in the chain of salvation are unbreakable. They are indestructible. And therefore, Paul says, on on, on the basis of this foundation, you can be assured that God is working all things together for your good. Happy and sad, difficult and pleasant, painful and joyful, God is working all of it for our good, namely our eternal salvation and redemption in Jesus. That we might be conformed to the image of His Son. That we might share in His glory. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, and we'll close with this. He responds to Paul's words here with with this observation, quote, If there would not be this divine purpose, but our salvation would rest upon our will or work, it would be based upon chance. How easily in that case could one single evil hinder or destroy it? Paul shows that the elect are not saved by chance, but by God's purpose and will. Indeed, for this reason, God allows the elect to encounter so many evil things as are here named. Namely, to point out that they are saved not by their merit, but by His election. His unchangeable and firm purpose of salvation in Christ. They are saved despite their many rapacious and fierce foes and the vain efforts to lead them into perdition. End of quote. This is the promise. That all things, by God's grace, all things He is working together for our good. And how can we know that? Not based on our own merits, but as Luther says here, based on God's unchangeable and firm purpose of salvation in Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You that the gospel hope that You have given us is sure that it is certain And Lord, we thank You that based on that hope, based on this sure foundation, we can trust that all the difficulties, all the hardships that we experience in this life, all the suffering we know, that You are working in our lives. You are working for good, both presently to conform us to the image of Your Son, and eternally when we will finally be like Him. Lord, we pray that as we understand this promise and this sure and certain foundation, Lord, we pray that our strength, our our courage, our joy, we pray, Lord, that it would increase. And we pray that we would be faithful to You all the days of our lives. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it.